Good morning. Uh, this is Rob Behrens welcoming you to my penultimate hosting of Radio Ombudsman on another sunny day from Manchester. My guest today is the celebrated human rights and public lawyer, Adam Wagner. Adam has acted in a number of public inquiries and was the special advisor to Parliament's Joint Committee on Human Rights and the COVID uh, inquiry. He's well known for his human rights uh, advocacy work. He founded both the human rights charity Each Other and the acclaimed UK human rights blog. He set up and hosts the Better Human Rights podcast and is a distinguished practitioner acting out of Doughty Street Chambers. He's much sought after as a legal commentator on social affairs, television and media, and we're very lucky to have him with us. Adam, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. We usually start out on Radio Ombudsman asking our guests if they could tell us a bit about themselves, their background and the values they were brought up with. Could, could you say something about that? Yeah, um, well, as I say, I'm a barrister. I've been a barrister for 15 years now, generally practising human rights and public law and public inquiries. I'm at Doughty Street Chambers now, but I was at One Crown Office Row for the first sort of part of my career, moved, I think, just over six years ago. I always wanted to, I didn't always want to be a lawyer. Um, I decided to be a lawyer in my sort of mid twenties um, after you know, drifting from one idea to another about what I was gonna do. Um, but when I wanted to be a lawyer, I only wanted to be a human rights lawyer. That was my reason for doing law. In terms of my values that I was brought up with, um, I come from a Jewish family. Um, I grew up in South Manchester. I was brought up very much a sort of community minded person um, and with strong values where uh, I, I guess of uh, volunteering and commitment to community. Um, commu community and family are a very important part of my life and I'm very involved in my Jewish community and I've, I've, I'm a trustee of number of charities I'm a school governor so I see sort of you know life is is about obviously doing what you um what you enjoy um and what gives you what give you gives you satisfaction but also sort of giving back um it's a really important part of of why how I live my life thank you uh, I did not know that you came from South Manchester where I also came from I was brought up in Didsbury and we have more in common than I, I realise, so uh, that's good to note. What what did you study at university? Did you look at, did you study law or something no, else? No, no, I, I had no inclination to do law at all. I did, um, I started doing English literature. Um, I did that for about a year and then I changed to politics and philosophy. So I was, uh, I was a, 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 you know, a humanities student, I, I guess. Yeah. yeah, and then, so then you went to law school afterwards. I, I worked for, um, I, I came back to Manchester and worked for a Jewish charity for a year. Um, and then I went off to do a master's in political science and then decided um, to do law, um, partly because I still couldn't quite figure out where I wanted to go. And I thought a couple of years of more studying was uh, sounded attractive um, and, and the bar seemed like a good potential option. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't a hugely planned route it was uh it, it was a series of 
smaller decisions which led in that direction. A number of our listeners should take note of that, particularly the younger ones who are always pressed into expressing a a view about what they want to do when they're at school and it takes yeah. time to decide. I, ne- I never, I wasn't one of those people at school that said I'm going to do this or that or the other. Um, I was, I, 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 that just wasn't, it just wasn't my interest and, and again even at university I was really very vague. I, I was much more interested in studying than I was in, in setting up a career. Thank you. The last year commemorates the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and I went to Kyiv in support of my human rights counterpart in the Ukraine to mark this event, which is clearly very significant. Could you tell us about what you think is the importance of this document? Yeah, I I think it's a hugely important document. I think more than a document, it's a commitment um, by the by the states that signed up to it, which is every state, um, no matter what their um, you know political system or um you know the the, the view of of democracy or, or or what have you it was it was a rare moment i think of clarity by the world after the second world war and after the holocaust where it was decided or it was it was thought that it, it this what we've just been through and, and having just been through two world wars you know a, a, a huge pandemic and economic crash and just instability for decades, um, it was decided that, that that they would try something different, and that the that there couldn't just be a rule of the strongest state. Um, there had to be something more broader and a broad set of principles and values which people could, which states would have to uh, comply with. And and the the Universal Declaration in itself, I mean, it's not you can't enforce the Universal Declaration. You can't go to still can't go to a world court really and and get your individual rights um, enforced but what it did is it led to a a whole raft of of regional agreements like the European Convention on Human Rights but also the Inter-American Charter of Rights and and lots of other um, similar documents which are enforceable And, and that started you know it's still a very much a work in progress but that started in as on a path I'd like to think towards thinking about the law and thinking about our values as something which are universal rather than being specific to whatever political system or or even political leader you happen to have any particular time. So you would regard the current debate about the merit of the European Convention as as not being a good idea? Um, I, I think it's it's always right to keep things under review, um, and and these these sometimes it's, it's wrong to treat these these documents these these texts as religious artifacts where they mm. they're sort of holy holy relics of a different time which we have to comply with regardless of whether the times have changed. So I think on that side, I, I think it's fine to review them, and they do the bodies themselves, particularly the European the Council of Europe and uh, reviews. The European Convention on Human Rights all the time, and there's new bits added, and and there's the court is also constantly interpreting it so that it it re- remains a living instrument, as as the, some of the founders called it, and that's all all for the good. That's part of society's developing. But what I don't think is the right approach is to is to say, well, look, we we need we need to be 
totally in control of of all of our um, of all of our laws and all of our values, and we we can take nothing from these international bodies. I think that's really um, that's really dangerous because there was there's a there's a there is obviously you give away some sovereignty when you sign up to international agreements, mm. and, and but you get something back as well. That's what's not talked about enough that you get a you get a, an international system which you we we're part of Europe we're part of the the world system you get a, a fairer and a more liberal international system that's why that's why Churchill for example and Roosevelt um, who knew a lot about um, war and were not um, lefty liberals they saw the system as a really important post-war um, development that would allow would prevent um, totalitarian states emerging in the way that they'd emerged in the in the 30s and 40s. So I think it's really, I just think it's really um, short-sighted to junk the try and junk these things all together and stop, and also stop playing the leadership role which the UK has traditionally played from since it, the convention came into force in 1953. As the the parliamentary ombudsman, my mandate does not explicitly mention human rights but the idea that you could operate as an ombudsman without constant reference to human rights is absurd so we we look uh time and time again at, at human rights issues i mean there's so much going on in the world that that uh creates attention on these issues um but specifically you've done an enormous amount of work around human rights during the covid pandemic could you tell us something about that, please? The COVID pandemic was was an extraordinary emergency situation, um, uh, uh, the, the likes of which I don't think we've faced as a country since the Second World War. I think it was a real, it really was a unique situation because the government, almost overnight, you know, it happened really, really quickly. The government took the reins of our laws and also our freedoms, you know, that we got to, we went went from a position on the 25th of March where the law was something that people generally didn't worry about very much unless they were um, engaged in crime or worried, or, you know, not paying their taxes. Um, you know, the, the law was on the edges of, of people's experience. Not, not everybody, you know, there are people, the more vulnerable in society uh, hit, hit the law uh, more often. But for most people, they don't. Um, and, and then on the 26th of March, when the first lockdown law came into force, you needed to know the, what the law was it, it, to, to know whether you could leave your house or, yeah. or you know, see a relative or hug somebody or, um, you know, play sports or go to school or go to work. You know, all of the basic aspects of li life were suddenly being controlled by these regulations. And the regulations were 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 changing um, in those in that first year. Uh, on average, I, I calculated every three days. So so you had an absolutely un, you know extraordinary shift in the way the law um, was um, if impacting on people's lives, and at the same time, the way that Parliament was creating laws, because all of these laws, the regulations were created by statutory instruments. So they were they were created because of using the emergency procedures in the Public Health Act. They were created at the same time as the health minister, Matt Hancock, signed the bottom of the piece of paper, which had the law on it. Um, and then they didn't have to be debated in Parliament um, or voted on for another month. 
so they could be in force and you know that could be totally illiberal they could be uh, oppressive but they parliament wouldn't even look at them for another month by which time there would have been 10 or 15 more new regulations so the whole thing would have been redundant anyway so it was a real danger time for for rights um with ju with justification because it was it was it was also a very big important very big danger time for public health and for people's lives so those ba that balancing exercise was really um very quite novel and really difficult um and it's and i tried as as best i could to first of all give give people better access to the laws which i thought was an extremely important um role to play given that you know that that point about if you don't know the law you might be committing a crime by leaving the house people yeah. needed to understand that and and i tried to sort of be i became not, not deliberately but just because there was no one else doing it a sort of public explainer of the laws and and at the same time working with the joint committee on human rights to on a on a series of reports sort of live reports of what was going on and the human rights implications and also working in the courts to um, on a whole range of issues from uh, detention in hotel quarantine to the right to protest to the fixed penalty note, these large fixed penalty notices, um, you know, whether people could travel to see their partners. You know, it was a it was a really um, it was a very busy time yeah. like that. Well, there's important work that you did. We we've submitted evidence to the public inquiry on COVID about the themes which we've seen in the COVID and post-COVID situation where there's been a dramatic rise in complaints following a pause. And one of the big themes that uh, we've noticed is about the DNA CPRs, the do not attempt uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And, and what we found from our complaints is that disabled people and older people were most likely to be affected by an arbitrary application of this procedure in a way which was entirely unfair to the individuals concerned. Do you think the the joint committee and and the public inquiry is going to come up with are going to come up with solutions or suggestions about how to prevent this in the future? They will definitely be looking at these issues. So, so I'm acting um, in module three and four of the inquiry at the moment, which is the, the module three is the healthcare module. So the healthcare response to COVID-19 and module four is vaccines and therapeutics. And I know that in module three, um, do not attempt. I'm going to call it CPR because I can't remember exactly what it's done. Yeah. Uh, forms that, that were filled in or not filled in are, are going to form a big part, I think, of the evidence. Um, I think you've you've highlighted in with that issue something which was specific to um, people, particularly in care homes and in hospital settings, but also something that was more universal to that period, which is that when you have this extreme emergency situation happening and you have laws being made very regularly, lots of you know uh, changes to the way our liberties are protected and also a lot of safeguards taken away um, because of the speed and the extreme uh, danger of what was happening. The people, the, the groups that tended to suffer were, as you'd expect, the people with the least access to the law, to lawyers, the people with the, the who were already vulnerable. So um, people, disabled people, uh, people who were 
from um, from poor socio socioeconomic backgrounds who were given hugely disproportionately more fixed penalty notices. Um, you know, I, I, people with um, learning difficulties who couldn't understand the, the the laws as they were changing. You know, all, all of the groups that you would expect yeah. to um, asylum seekers. I, I acted in um, a case about the Napier barracks and the fact that asylum seekers were being housed in the, in these inhuman conditions at Napier barracks, where they were being prevented from leaving despite a COVID outbreak and the sort of hundreds of COVID cases. And 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 the 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 problem was, and I could see it in real time, and and not do very much about it, was that so much is going on, and there's so much fear, and people are so busy and so worried about their own welfare that, that a lot that would normally be, you know, brought to the fore in our in our system, you know, with our system of ombudspersons and um, lawyers and legal aid and parliamentary committees and MPs, all of those sort of safeguards everybody's so flat out and there's so much so many different pressures on on time and resources that i think a lot of things went under the radar that would ordinarily be given huge public attention so i think those orders are absolutely part of that picture thank you could we move on to talk about the ombudsman and human rights the joint committee on human rights in parliament uh held an inquiry which we gave evidence to, to see whether it was worthwhile creating a separate human rights ombudsman in the UK. I thought this was a bonkers idea because we already have 16 different public service ombudsmen. We don't want to create another one. What we want to do, in my view, and I said to the committee, is reform the existing structures to make sure they properly incorporate human rights mandates, which most of my colleagues in Europe, in line with the Venice principles, actually have. And happily, the committee agreed with that. So they argued, along with the uh, other select committees, that there, there's an urgent need to reform ombudsman law to make it more modern and up to date. One of the critical weaknesses of the scheme is that citizens have to go through their member of parliament uh, before they can lodge a complaint about public affairs to my office. I know from the Windrush affair and the cases that came to me, the limited number of cases, that less advantaged people, vulnerable communities, are less likely to make a complaint if they have to go to their MP because they feel intimidated or they feel that it's alien to their understanding of how, of what works. And so they just go away rather than bring the complaint. Do you agree that there should be ombudsman reform and along and, and getting rid of the uh, MP filter? I mean, it just it seems very um, paternalistic to me. Um, it seems like something from a different age that you would have uh, that you know, and, and I suspect that was what was behind it. This idea that you you don't want members of the public using important public resources without some sort of uh, chat, looking them in the eyes and seeing if they've got something to them. And I just think that's. I mean, it's, it really sounds completely um, balmy to me that you would have uh, have to go to an MP because, I, I, like you said, I mean, I, I deal with a lot with quite a lot of cases where people it comes to me after somebody has been to an MP. 
and actually, you know, particularly in the, in the, when I used to do asylum, I do, used to do um, more asylum law and a lot of MPs deal with asylum um, issues and detention issues. Um, and they often they do a really good job when they when they get involved, they're usually very um, dedicated. Their teams are very dedicated, but but they are their own thing. I, I, I see ombudspersons and MPs as, as two important, you know, um, elements of representation of public interest they don't i don't see how they link and and in fact it, i can also see it as being a bit of a conflict of interest because what yeah. what if what if the mp you know what if there's a political element to the um a party political element to the complaint or there is a local element to the complaint which i, I guess generally there will be the mp might 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 want to deal with it in a different way than the independent ombudsperson so um but I think most fundamentally is the it's just the intimidation factor is that it's 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 difficult to overemphasize how intimidating public authorities are to vulnerable individuals um, and how terrified they are generally of public authorities, because gen if they if they need to go to an ombudsperson, you know, like you, they're going to be have had a very bad experience of a public authority. Um, and, and I think they're very distrustful as well. And, and the idea that they would just go to an MP or just turn up to the surgery or write to them, you know, how would they how would they get in touch with them? I think is, you know, would put off probably nine, nine out of 10 people, um, yeah. although that's a non-empirical. Um... I know that's the case because we now have regular uh, ombudsman roadshows where I go out to communities that wouldn't otherwise get to me. And the conversations are often very difficult because making a complaint is, a, is, is not something that people do on a daily basis. So usually they want to talk and express their frustration rather than say something explicitly. And we have to understand that and find ways of making ourselves accessible. But the other thing is, you, you use the word patronising, the Wyatt report from justice in 1961 was the founding uh, document for the 1967 legislation. And it talked about the need to provide a service for the little man, in inverted commas, who couldn't look after himself. So there was a gender bias in it, but there's also the view that, you know, uh, MPs could do the job properly uh, if people were uh, capable of of rising to their level. So I think all of that needs to be thought about again. C can I just move on to what well, was quite interesting for barristers? Many barristers are quite brilliant, focused on what they do in a legal context and not necessarily aware of the public implications of their role. I say that as a former complaints commissioner to the bar. Uh, but you, you're you're different. You 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 run a life which embraces social media and campaigning, and that's very important and very interesting. Could could you say something about that? How interesting it is. Whether there are any tensions in doing it. So I I I, I didn't exactly plan to do it like that, but it was it, it was always my intention, as I said, to be. I, I wanted to be a, a, a human rights lawyer and a public lawyer but also a lawyer in public that was yeah. my and, and and i mean I, I lived in america for a year um before i went to the bar and i think that there's a much more of a sense in this in, in the states of 
lawyers as public figures, um, you know, and that as being part of their job, particularly lawyers that take sort of campaigning cases. And obviously that's that's just one way of doing it. It's not, I don't have any issue with people who do a sort of more traditional version of, of my job. And I don't expect, you know, and when younger uh, wannabe barristers or, or new barristers uh, ask me, how did I do that kind of stuff? I say, you know, it's it's really not necessary um, to get on. And in fact, as you say, it can it, there can be tensions. Um, I mean, certainly in the in the earlier part of my career when I was acting from a more public authority. So I used to um, I used to do government work um, for for five years or so. I was on a government panel, and and at the same time, I was I was building the sort of human rights blog, which I set up when I was a pupil. Um, and and just because that that was a sort of right place, right time kind of setup that legal blogging was just starting. Social legal social media was just starting through blogging before Twitter, um, and nobody was doing it. And there was just a few well, there was just a few chambers that had set up sort of you know subject specific blogs. And I set up this human rights blog because I you know I'm quite technical. I always liked. I was, used to do a bit of graphic design, and I thought, well, I can just do all that. I, I the, the the software was there to just do it very easily, um, so I did it, and I convinced my chambers to to put their name on it because I think mainly because they didn't know what it was, and I said <laughs> it would it wouldn't cost anything, um, and and if we don't do it, someone else will do it. And they said, fine, have a crack, but um, it it was just it, it it was at a time when there was. The newspapers had got rid of a lot of their legal journalists um, and the court reporters for financial reasons. And there was just the need. There was a lot of controversial human rights cases coming through the pipeline. People like Abu Qatada, the prisoner voting case, those sorts of things. So there, there was a real um, there was a there was a need and there was a, a thirst in, 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 in the public and in the press for reliable legal information that could be that wasn't like from a journal that could be read and understood and it was in plain english which was that was always the, the 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 focus of the blog whenever i gave sort of guidelines the guy that there was there was i think four rules plain english short paragraphs always quote and link to primary sources and if you get something wrong correct it quickly um, and 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 you know and and just own up to it, and that was that was the sort of premise of it, and it was it was quite revolutionary because that's not how legal writing is. From a from a, in, when lawyers write about law, they tend to write. I think now it's quite a bit better, but especially at the time, it tends to be very technical and very practitioner focused, and that wasn't it mm. at all. And and then when Twitter came along, that really, you know, again, that was just that was the right place at the right time. There's just a lot of need for it. But then it became a bit of a tension with as I was getting involved in more controversial cases on the government side, I, I knew that I couldn't carry on doing both things. It just was it was just becoming more, more, more of a potential conflict because a lot of the stuff that I was writing was quite critical of the government. I, so I, I knew that I would need to um, move over to to onto the other side and do, which is what I do now, which is more sort of claimant focused. And, and, and now there tends not to be much of attention at all because I tend to I, I try and keep within certain rules that I've set myself which is not to I try never to get involved in personal arguments or be personally critical of people always keep it keep it on the sort of level of what are, what's the law what's the what are the value what are the concepts here what's the point um of what we're you know what's the substantive debate 
and, and at the same time, I, I will never um, write about or tweet about any cases that I'm involved in unless my client has asked me to. Um, and, and unless that's part of the sort of, you know, approach we're taking to publicity around the case. So sort of more campaigning type case. And that seems to keep me out of trouble, more or less. So there's not 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 entirely. Yeah, it's very important to demystify, the, you know, the professional role that you have. And you're very successful at doing that. And uh, But I just wanted to ask you, I, I know a number of barristers on Twitter who get abused horribly when they they raise issues and the challenge or the problem is how to deal with that abuse or whether or not to to deal with it do you do you ever experience that yeah i mean definitely i've i've done that and, and i've been involved in certain issues where it's led to a lot of abuse um, probably the the most sustained was when i was um working on the uh, anti-Semitism and the Labour Party issue under when Jeremy Corbyn was in charge of the Labour Party and I was acting in the Equality and Human Rights Commission um, investigation into that, um, yeah. into the complaints that were, 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 were with, I was acting for the organisation that lodged the complaints. And and that that period was very, you know, it, it, was, it was an issue which I was campaigning on and I was working on at the same time. And it was, and, and I did get a lot of abuse and, you know, in, in the same way that, you know, like you say, there's certain issues that are very, that become very, uh, trend, people are very trenchant about, um, yeah. and you know, um, trans rights, for example, uh, at the moment, anything to do with party politics can be very, you know, very, uh, uh, people get, get into a sort of war, war footing. And and I, the way I think about it now is sort of as I've had my, had my scars is, if there's a particular issue first of all can i add value to the public conversation and and that means not something that i'm just sort of you know just have a sort of side interest in but do i actually have expertise that i can offer um that will help like you say demystify what's going on and and if if not i generally won't get involved yeah. um and, th and then the second question is you know I, I like i think of myself as a bit like having an energy bar like in a video game and and I and I kind of I've got a sense now of how much energy have I got on the bar and, and how much is this going to take up if I get stuck into it? And it, and is it worth it? You know, what's the what's the what's the cost and what's the benefit? Yeah. And and I try to you can't always predict that, but I try to um I try to weigh that up and decide whether to leap in. I think a few years ago I probably would have leapt in a lot more um without you know without thinking of that. But now I don't. I just don't have the, the the. Uh, it's such a mental load that sort of public taking that public role that I, I for for me and for my family I don't like to. I try not to um, deplete myself too much. It's a very good, informed, pragmatic answer. Thank you very much. My last question: We we've got five hundred colleagues working in our offices in Manchester and in London. The vast majority are young graduates or in their mid-20s, uh, many with legal degrees, interested in human rights issues. What advice would you give them at this stage of their career? The main bit of, bit of advice I always give, if for people who are interested in public law, human rights, those sorts of areas, is just be flexible. And and to think also think in if if you if you think about a career 
think in sort of five or 10 year increments. Don't don't get too het up about what's going to happen in the next year or two years, because it's so it's such a difficult and you know complex area of law. And there's so many different ways of practicing it. Like you say, there's, there's, there's a huge amount you can um, achieve in in this in working for public authorities like ombudspersons or or, or government or health authorities, in, in and so much you can learn. And I, and I don't think and I think there's a the, there's a lot of students that I meet who are very fixated on the bar, yeah. um, because the bar is seen as the sort of most glamorous or the best the best paid, which it's not, you know, or you know whatever they've seen a film and it it, it looks exciting. But I, I think people have got to think of careers as a sort of um, as as a series of, of of different building blocks, which you don't always know what 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 you're actually building. You 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 go towards the thing first of all, the things that you're offered, because it's so hard to get any kind of opportunities in this world. You go towards the things you, you're offered and get the best you can out of them, and keep an eye on that sort of five-year plan and start you know be, be be putting in place ways you know the 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 extra things you're going to need to move at some point towards in this general direction that you're trying to move but not to get too upset or worried if you if you're not where you want to be in a couple of years or even in three or four years because that's just not the way i mean if i look at all of the people i was at law school with None of them has followed a straight path or you know straight line through what they wanted to do or, or or where they wanted to be and and things change your life changes other things come in like families and life generally so that's uh, yeah be flexible and just keep an eye on the sort of long term rather than the short term. That's brilliant, Adam. It's been a delight. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been very interesting and and very useful. We're really grateful. It's a pleasure. So, so uh, my next guest is uh, the young Instagram doctor, Dr. Suj, who has taken medical advice to a, a, a new arena in social media. Uh, he'll be with us in a couple of weeks. Uh, but for the moment, with thanks, great thanks to Adam Wagner. This is Rob Barron signing off, wishing you a good day from Radio Ombudsman.